Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Prajna Ginti. Welcome Prajna. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Prajna, yeah. you live in uh, Grass Valley, don't you? That's right. Grass Valley, California. Mm. Uh -huh. My sister-in-law and her husband lived out there for a while, but they're not there anymore. <clears throat> I'm going to start by reading just a little quote from you and then in the course of this interview you're going to tell us all about yourself, so I won't do much of an introductory biography. Here's what you wrote. My passion for helping others comes from, from, a, from a profound respect and understanding of the human condition and how we suffer. I listen and function to inspire you to see through unnecessary layers of conditioning that veil your authentic expression. I provide sacred space for stillness practice, deep listening, body-centered psychotherapy, and resources for spiritual awakening that empower you to embody your deepest realization and walk bravely within your humanity. The word prajna, the name prajna, prajna translates as heart wisdom, the universal intelligence that resides within all human beings, awake or dormant, but always here. When realized, prajna shows us that there is no other. We are of the same essence, undivided, already pure, reflecting as each other in this vast array of spirit. Hmm. So that's nice. One thing I think I'll find interesting about this interview, having read portions of your upcoming book, is that I often have the sense that what people call awakening is merely an intellectual understanding or it's some kind of preliminary thing that's very nice and very genuine and, and very sweet but hasn't really stood the tests that life may potentially throw at it. <laughs> mm. and, and, you know, yours had some tests thrown at it, to say the least. And it's, it's interesting how you kind of de dealt with all that and came through it. So you'll be telling people what that means as we get into it. Sure. So where would you like to start? Well, I guess I could start what drew me to spirituality in the first place. Sure. Okay. Well, I think as I told you in the introduction, I started out with a Catholic upbringing. And being a girl in a Catholic environment back in the early 60s, there weren't a lot of opportunities, as you know. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of the little girl on the outside looking in and seeing how do you get inside to the Mass, and was always very curious about the mystery, you know, like what, what was going on. And hearing, even though I heard the Mass in Latin, there was something that drew me to it. But also there, were, there was a belief that was developed because of that religious conditioning that something about me wasn't allowed to be part of it. You know, so it was kind of like from the beginning negating your divinity and then taking off seeking for it someplace else. So although something very profound happened on my 10th birthday, I was very close to my godmother and she died exactly on that day. And I happened to be there when it happened. I saw that something didn't die, that there was something continuous and constant. And I have never been able to forget that. I mean, through any kind of life experience, whether it be easy or difficult, there was always in the background, this background hum, there's something that continues. There's something more behind all of this appearance. You know, there's something behind form. There's something that's uh, living all of this, even when the body dies. So that was a strong impulse in me, very natural. I have no idea where it came from. Like people talk about prior lives, you know, we don't need to go into that. But, but I came into this life with that curiosity. Prior lives make sense to me. You know, some people come in with 
they're just really cooking already. And in other people, it's, this is the farthest from their interest. And of course, in you know, in the Gita, that, that very question is asked by Arjuna: What what happens if a person fails to reach the goal in this life? You know, does he does he perish like a broken cloud? Is the phrase used? And and basically, Lord Krishna says, no, he picks up where he left left off. You know, next time around, and he's uh -huh. either born into a family of yogis or, or born into some situation which will be conducive to picking up uh, the practice again in the next life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's true, and I think that the the family that we choose or that we're given whatever it is that that all of it is conducive you know that's something that as we continue to talk for me if i i did have a teaching it would be that your life as it is you know everything that we're given that's our doorway that's yeah. that's the ground in for our practice that's the ground for our realization and even though we jump out of it and we run away from it and we cover ourselves up and we hide, eventually we're drawn back to that and that is the place that gives us our freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, because like one part of freedom is, what am I free from? You know, and that's partial and eventually we have to be able to be free to return to everything. And when you say conducive, you know, I, I would say that in th that applies in the broadest sense. You might be born into a family of alcoholics or, you know, something very difficult and that might not on the surface seem very conducive but if we see the universe as ultimately being kind of this evolution machine which is ultimately you know fostering uh, and propelling our growth toward higher realization then everything that happens to us and you, you can disagree with it or agree with this is ultimately serving that purpose even though it may not seem like it on the surface yeah, yeah, I would agree with that very much so, mm. because um, in that, like if somebody is born into a difficult family, alcoholism, I'm familiar with that, <laughs> there's a dissatisfaction in that, there's an underlying, you know, dissatisfaction because it, it isn't nourishing, and I think that naturally we're meant to be nourished, yeah. and nat naturally we're drawn to love, and so if we're in an environment and that isn't available to us, we're going to seek it someplace else eventually. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you fall down the rabbit hole so many times before you realize that, you know, I don't have to do that anymore and you go somewhere else. Yeah. So I think that there's a natural impulse toward love. I, I have babies and anyone who has um, had children and babies, you can, you can watch them and the very first inclination of a child is to reach out. You know, they're, they're always stretching out first. Mm -hmm. And we learn to pull back. You know, it's like the contraction, the pulling back, and the hiding is a learned behavior. I mean, and sometimes it's necessary because we do need to protect ourselves. But the first inclination is to expand, is to reach toward what's pleasant. All right, 10 years old. Your grandmother, your godmother okay. died, and you realized there was, uh, you know, something didn't die. Yeah, something didn't die. And um, well, then I went through the teenage life that everybody goes through, you know, and that kind of came with a bunch of confusion. And I did a lot of hiding, you could say, and got involved in different addictions and things. Mm. And then I met my first spiritual teacher named Eunice Zimmerman in um, Manhattan, New York. And uh, I was given, I guess you would call a psychic reading. 
And uh, my, my roommate at college kind of dragged me to her because I was, you know, mixed up in a lot of things. And she um, had previously, you know, she was seeing my, herself and my behavior and was wanting to show me there's a way out of that. Yeah. So she brought me to Eunice. And what the first thing that they did is they gave me a reading. And in the reading, that was kind of to see into your soul, I could say, you know, your soul purpose. And so what they told me during that reading, so and I was they pretty, means Eunice? Eunice had that capability to sort of diagnose your soul, so to speak? Yeah, actually, it wasn't Eunice. It was her daughter. Her oh, daughter um, tranced, tranced a guide called R.W., okay. kind of like a Seth. Yeah. That, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about this, and I didn't really know what I believed about it either until I sat there in front of R.W., and R.W. pretty much told me my entire life. Mm. And I was like, wow, you know. <laughs> and then, then what he told me is that I had a sole purpose, and that at the time it was far from consciousness, and that I needed to become conscious of it. Mm. And I was to work with Eunice, and Eunice would be my guide, and she would help me to see through the the veils of conditioning so that I could get on with my life, you know, get on with uh, spiritual purpose. So R.W. wasn't going to tell you your sole purpose in so many words, but he said work with Eunice and it'll be revealed over time or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He okay. All that he said was that it had to do with learning that we're not separate. Mm. And I thought that was, I thought, wow, that's that's a real interesting thing to say, you know, because I was 21 at the time and I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm the same as everybody else. <laughs> and that was a, a lot to try to digest. But, uh, you know, so then I started working with Eunice and she gave, I learned to meditate and do all of these things, but mostly she was helping me to uh, work through unconscious material. Okay. You know, so it was, it was therapeutic in a sense. And um, from there I went on to theology school you know, later on, and I, want, I felt like I was drawn towards some kind of calling, some kind of service, and I didn't know what it was. But before I went to theology school, I had a dream, and it told me that I should go to the church and find somebody there that I could um, trust and talk to. And that was the first time I had any um, image come back into my mind about the church, because I left it when I was a teenager, feeling betrayed by it, because it didn't really welcome um, so many things that I saw were real in life that weren't able to be addressed in this so-called spiritual environment. And, you know, it was good in many other ways. So when I got this dream to go to a church, I thought, oh, geez, you know, what kind of a church would this be? And, and that's when I found out, I mean, I think I was pretty naive at the time, and I really believed that whatever religion you were raised in, that you needed to stay with that. I didn't know there were other options. Mm. So that opened me up to all these other possibilities. It, it just brought me right out of my religious conditioning. And I started to explore other spiritualities, first through theology school and world religions. And then I um, went and I lived in an ashram. Was that a Yogi Amrit Desai's ashram by any chance? Yes, it, yes, it was. Okay. I figured yeah. just from reading in your book, uh, you know, about 300 people, you're doing a lot of yoga. It sounded like him. And it was like, yeah, yeah. It, was like, it, could have, it would have either been him or Muktananda's, but I figured it sounded like his. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it was very much um, a lot of physical discipline. Right. A lot, a lot of yoga, a lot of uh, karma yoga, mm -hmm. a lot of meditation. And it was all really great. And, um, and I was there for three years when Eunice showed up. Eunice showed up at the ashram unexpected. And before she left, she asked me, you know, very one-pointedly, she was very Zen-like. You know, she was kind of a no-nonsense teacher and always right to the point. And she said to me, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm doing all these great practices. Can't, you know, can't you see I'm developing skill and I'm advancing on the path to enlightenment, <laughs> you know? And, and she said, oh, this isn't your practice. And she, and she said, get on with it. You know, and it was like, she was reminding me of all of our earlier conversations about get, get on to the truth of who you are, just get on with it. And then she went home and she died three days later. Mm. And I don't think I would have taken it so seriously had, it, had she not died and that had such an impact on me. Because I was thinking, oh, well, Eunice is getting a little old, you know, she's not really seeing the value of what's happening here. Yeah. And, you know, she doesn't really get the, you know, because what she wanted me to see is that purification isn't necessary. As she said, you could spend your whole life here purifying and it's not going to change anything you know, what you are already is enough, and that's what you need to realize. Doing that kind of intensive yogic practice is, can be very extreme. So when I left there, I left right away, and then I went to another extreme. And that's the chapter in my book that's called Pantry. From Ashram to Pantry. Right. <laughs> yeah, because I was depriving myself of all of these delicious foods. You know, we were on the brown rice diet and seaweed and sprouts and twig tea, you know, that was like the extent of it, salad. Yeah. And so then I went and my friend opened up her pantry door and oh, just everything broke open and it was like going from one extreme to the other. And that's what happens until you come back into the middle somewhere. And that was when I was introduced to my first satsang. I, I just want to say I can totally relate to that because I did a very similar thing in the summer of 75. I did all this fasting and fruit diets and one, one week I ate nothing but barley gruel for a week because I read in some <laughs> book that that was supposed to be good for you. And boy, when I snapped out of that, I, I couldn't stop pigging out. I mean, I looked pregnant. I was eating so much, you know, after each meal. and I'd be down in the kitchen at four in the morning noshing on things. I just went nuts. And it took quite a few months to balance that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did for me too. It, yeah. And it was so uncomfortable. Yeah. And then there was also this impulse. It, it, I wasn't able to stop. Yeah, that was exactly. what I, yeah, I noticed I, I just can't stop this. It's and, the rubber band effect, you know, you stretch it far enough and it just snaps. Yeah, yeah. My entire focus then was food. You know, it was just everything was about food. So I got out of the house a couple of times and what did I, I went to a food store. I went to a health food store mm -hmm. and I saw a, a flyer there about a potluck dinner that was put on by a spiritual group. And that was um, the Yogananda group. And so I went to that potluck. I met a woman there that worked at a computer company and they like to hire people on the spiritual path. And so I was looking for a job. I was looking for anything to get me out of the pantry, you know, like get my life going again. Yeah. And so I was able to get that job and she turned out to be my office mate. And she had sat with Nirsadagata Maharaj. It's a good thing she you had... didn't go and get a job at a Dunkin' Donuts. That would have really been your undoing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So she, sat, she had sat with Nisargadatta, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
so she was she was in the practice of non-duality and I saw a couple of pictures on her desk. Ramana Maharshi was there and um, Anandamai Ma and people I had never seen before. But I could tell from looking at their photographs there was something that drew me to that. And the next thing I know she asked me if I wanted to go to a satsang. And I didn't know what that was. And that was early 80s, I think. You know, it was quite a, quite a long time ago. I was desperate at the time. I was suffering. You know, I was like, I lost my teacher. I couldn't stop eating. I was unhappy. I really missed my community. That was what I loved about the ashram. I loved those 300 people, you know, that we were all doing pranayama exercises together and eating together and working together and all of that. And I was, I did develop a lot of um, talents while I was there, so to speak, because I did become a yoga teacher and a massage therapist, and I was really very developed then in the healing arts. And that comes into play later because I was able to develop my own business in Silicon Valley. Mm. So it was really great in many other ways. So she brought me to satsang, and I was in a very receptive mode, you know, because I was, I was at angst right. you now at the time. And so she brought me into satsang, the ambiance was just very conducive to relaxing. There was an old tape of Anandamai Ma playing in the background, and um, it was really quiet. And I just went and I settled down into a seat, and the teacher came into the front and started talking about Ramana's teaching. And what I heard is, you are the self. And that just went all the way through and just landed in me, and I got it. Hmm. You know, or it got me, yeah. and life opened up in me, and the eating immediately fell away. You know, that was one of the first things that I noticed, and also um, my seeking ended then. So I didn't have to look. I felt like I really returned to something, like this was the anchor. Yeah. This was this is what was going to bring me home, and it did. It did over time. Everything balanced out. You know, the swings in my life started to balance more harmony, and I started to um, enter a state they call Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Define that. That is um, a very deep absorption in spirit, you know, where you're just sitting. I would sit in meditation and I would immediately become absorbed. Entirely? In, no, no, yeah. thought, no thoughts, no nothing? No thought, no thought. I would even lose the sense of my body. Mm -hmm. The sense of being located in, in a body wasn't there at the time. I was somewhat aware of what was happening in the environment, but it didn't matter. And at the same time, as that continued... How long would you be absorbed like that? I would hear the beginning of the, of the satsang mm -hmm. bell I would for the whole satsang period. I see. So it would be two, two hours. Mm -hmm. Or if we were having some other kind of a day where the meditations were longer, I could sit, sit in it all day. I didn't even decide to do it. Right. That, was, that was the interesting thing. It wasn't like a decision got made. And also during that, different energies would open up and my, my body would go into a different position. I only knew about that later because one time one of the teachers talked to me and asked me if I could try to sit up straight in meditation. Mm. <laughs> and I said that I didn't really know that I wasn't. And, you mean you and would just kind of slouch or something without knowing it? Or I would Go I would off tip. to one side? Like, yeah. Like Kriyas and things, you were moving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or my arms would do something. Yeah. Something was happening and I, couldn't, I, I wasn't really aware of it until afterwards and they would say something to me. 
especially when they were having new visitors, they didn't want somebody to be in all these <laughs> awkward positions. <laughs> Gyrating around, yeah. Yeah. But something really profound about that was I felt like I didn't talk very much about it, but I think most people have, if you're on the spiritual path, most people, not everybody, are usually coming out of something difficult. You know, there's a reason that they're seeking for happiness, for freedom. So during that time of just sitting, I felt like my prior life was being washed away and that I was um, being, uh, what's the word, like nourished, nourished, preserved in a very deep way. And I felt like I didn't age during that time. <laughs> you know, I, I felt a, a youthfulness and a vitality. I'm sure that's true. I think that sitting in such states has its value. It, it is very nourishing and purifying and rejuvenating. All kinds of good stuff is happening on subtle levels of the physiology. And, you know, some of which has actually been studied by, by various scientists and published in journals and so on. But there's probably a lot, lot more going on than Western science is able to measure. But anyway, I think it was probably, you know, just what the doctor ordered for you. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, and, um, but, I, but, and also and, I and you know, I just wanted to say one other quick thing is, you know, Eunice's statement that purification doesn't do it for you or whatever she said, I would suggest that perhaps all that purification and yoga you had done on the, in Pennsylvania had actually kind of, prepare the stage for this phase. It, it ha it, I, I'm sure the two can't be unrelated and that it, it might have made you more um, capable of sinking into those deep states. Possibly, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, I think one thing that it definitely gave me was um, discipline, a, a great deal of discipline. Except when it came to hostess ringdings or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think that's a good point. You know, I, I can't really tell. That's what I think. Everything in our life can prepare us for the next thing. So then I I became very involved in the teachings of Advaita Vedanta. I couldn't get enough of it. I remember I had the book I Am That, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Nirsadagata's book. And after the end of that period, I had to get a new a new book because I had <laughs> worn that out yeah. so much, you know, just, just reading it. And um, at the end of my time there, I had an opportunity to work on the translations of the Riba Gita, uh, the first time from Tamil and Sanskrit, editing, formatting the book and reading it every day to proof it. And yes. that's one of the things that Ramana said. He said, if you're to read anything, read the Riba Gita. Hmm. Let's just spell that for people. It's R-I-B-H-U, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. In case they want to look at it. Yeah. Riba Gita. It's a dialogue between the sage Ribu and one of his disciples on the nature of reality. Okay. And it comes in 44 verses. Mm -hmm. And the Tamil version is really very poetic and beautiful. And the Sanskrit is, it's different. It's written more in, in stanza. So uh, just 44 verses. So it's a really short thing. No, they're long verses. Oh, they're, okay. Well, I should say ch sections. Like chapters Chapters. Chapters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good sized book. Okay. And during that time, I um, was pregnant with my first daughter, Autumn. She was born during that time. Mm. And she's a remarkable human being. And I think that being able to be born in that environment, and she also heard the Gita every day. Nice. <laughs> you know, because uh, the whole time I was pregnant with her, that was what I was working on. And she had a, an easy, natural birth at home. 
where there weren't any complications whatsoever. In fact, the midwife almost didn't make it in time because she just came so easy. I would call that, I'm sure you've heard of these different phases and different people have talked about phases of spiritual awakening in different ways. And, you know, really understanding that spiritual awakening isn't a one-time thing and it's different for everybody. And it really evolves over time. So during that time, I feel like I was in the honeymoon phase. You know, it was really kind of coasting along. I was able to function at a very high level. I had a a business in Silicon Valley. And even though I I was going in and out of these deep meditative states on the outside in my life, I was functioning at a really high level. I think that that's one of the things that awakening can do for you because it kind of clears out the cobwebs of the mind and you can become very efficient, very focused, very clear. There's a verse in the Gita, yoga karma sukoshalam, which means yoga is skill in action. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was that phase. And then, and then the phase came for the spiritual rubber, where the rubber hit the road, so to speak. I had twins born to me that were one pound each. Like three months premature or something? Three months premature, mm-hmm. yeah. And they were smaller than my hands. Mm. And I had never been in a hospital before. Never, you know, that I can remember. I, I'm sure I was born in a hospital, <laughs> but I don't remember that. And then here, here I am, helicoptered to this big prestigious hospital because um, the hospital in our town thought, well, if the babies were coming now, they couldn't handle it. So they helicoptered me off to Stanford. So in other words, you went into labor three months premature. Yeah, and it's still, it's still not 100% clear what happened. I could have been having Braxton Hicks. It could have been, uh, which is an imitation of labor. So theoretically, I, it might have been a false alarm. It could have been a false alarm, wow. yes. Yeah. So there I was in Stanford for the weekend, and as soon as I got there, there weren't any signs of labor. Everything had stopped. Oh. But once they admitted me, they wouldn't let me leave. And they insisted and, on doing a cesarean? Just. They did. After two and a half days, um, they said that I had dilated beyond the point of no return. But also, I don't know how true that was because their um, sonogram, their particular machine to really be able to see clearly what was happening with the babies wasn't working on the weekend. Oh, brother. And when Monday morning came around, they were supposed to bring in a a technician. The technician never came, but a new doctor came on, and the new doctor decided that the babies needed to be born without getting this clear picture. Wow. And, and what they did is they um, pumped me up with Pitocin to induce labor. They assumed that the babies were two and a half pounds, but they weren't, because if they were two and a half pounds, you can have a vaginal birth. But anything smaller than that's impossible. The Pitocin wasn't working. Nothing was working. And so they decided to do a C-section. And so the babies came out and they were one pound. Mm. Abby did okay at the birth. Abby came out first, but Libby came out second and she, she couldn't breathe at all. So they gave her CPR for four hours, lost her twice. And she was in a semi-coma for the first six months of her life. So that was a huge shift for me overnight. You know, this happened in a weekend. Boy, you know, so that, that, that didn't really come out in, in the, the parts of your book that I read, that this, this whole thing might have been unnecessary. 
at least from a conventional perspective, you know, that, that it might have been a false alarm, it might have been a complete misjudgment. I mean, these days it would probably be, you know, automatic lawsuit if something like this happened. It'll be interesting for you to talk about as we go along, like how you have dealt not only with the challenges of your daughter, but with the sense of feeling that this might, that, that they just blew it, you know, that they, they did this to you, to you and your daughters unnecessarily. I, I, would, I would have a hard time getting over the resentment myself. Yeah, well, you know, what happened in the beginning, it's kind of like with anybody when there's a crisis, mm -hmm. you go into survival mode. You know, like the biology is all wrapped up in surviving. So, you know, it's kind of like as soon as we got out of there and I had the babies, all I could think about were the babies yeah. and how we were going to go on the next day. My midwife was axed out of the picture at the hospital. And I think, you know, so I didn't have her support, mm. which um, may or may not have brought something more to light. I don't know. When we later, many years later, actually, when Autumn was around 10, I think, I found um, a video, which was a video of the sonogram that was taken by the midwife's technician. And that was taken two weeks before they were born, you know, two weeks before the big hospital intervention. And in that video, the technician is saying, Prajna, there's no better way to carry babies. He said, you're doing it right. This is the Cadillac. They have two of everything, inner sac, outer sac, and two placentas. Because mm. I didn't know with twins, there's several formations. You can have 12 different formations. Mm. And the highest risk is that they share everything. And they call that twin-to-twin -twin blood transfusion syndrome. Mm. And that's what the doctor said I had. Uh, he was right. But, yeah, because then if you look at this, there, nothing is going to change in the sonogram. And if you look at this earlier one, it's super clear there was two of everything. But I didn't find that video until they were eight years old and the statute of limitations is age six mm -hmm. in the state of California. So I had to, and I have continuously needed to let that go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's had more of an impact when we watched that video, my daughter, who's really bright, my first who's not disabled emotionally has been very challenged by the whole situation so she sat there and watched that and she just cried it's like without without even speaking it it's like she she knew something about it wasn't wasn't quite right she was more angry than me she hardly had ever had a tantrum and that day she had such a tantrum and she said mom we have to do something about it and i did some investigation and then you have to decide, like, where do you want your energy to go? And if the and, statute of limitations had expired, what can you do anyway, I guess? Right, right. Yeah. You, need, you, need some, you need a real strong, high-powered lawyer, and yeah. then you're, go you're going up against a pretty, pretty big system. So, you know, for me, it, it's been a little bit of the um, grease for the mill, in a sense. You know, it's, it's been my edge, mm -hmm. and... Everything that uh, has come as a result of that, the different things that I need to interact with that normally you wouldn't. I'm kind of needing to work within a, an arena that I'm not accustomed to. And also to make good choices about that, to like really be able to listen and to take what's useful and let go of the rest and to be open to exploration. I mean, I know a lot of parents now and families who have different kinds of difficulties like this. And I really feel that my background, you know, living in the ashram, 
my, my meditation, everything that I have has allowed me to stay in this in, in ways that I see other people aren't able to. Yeah, as you continue to tell your story, I think people will see that you did an incredible job dealing with the situation of these kids and, and meeting with resistance from all sorts of uh, so-called authorities that wanted to do things in the conventional way and feed them conventional foods and, and all this stuff. And, and what you've done is really amazing, mm. in my opinion. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been a long haul. Yeah, really. Well, we're, we're kind of skipping ahead anyway because we're referring to things that people don't really know about yet because I've read your book and they haven't. But so you had these, you know, severely handicapped, uh, brain damaged, premature twins. And this was the end of the spiritual honeymoon, as you put it. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. So it maybe was. pick it up from there. Yeah. Well, I think I was saying how hormones kicked in for mm. a while. You know, the biology kicked in and I, I really feel that I was carried for, um, from my spiritual practice too. I feel like it carried me for a while. Even when I was in the emergency room in the OR, when that was happening and the, I could sense, even because I, I was put out, you know, right. I couldn't feel anything, you know, from the waist down. But I could feel and tell when the babies were born. And in that moment, I knew everything was okay. I knew that there, there was a, a deeper fundamental wellness that essentially what they are, who they are, was contained in peace. You know, that there was a, a fundamental okayness. And I knew that they, would, that they also needed tremendous help. And that was a huge seeing, if you know what I mean. I do. To be in that contradiction, you know, it's a paradox. Yeah, because when you say everything was okay, on a, sort of a, an apparent level, everything was not okay. I mean, you had these two babies that were severely disabled. But you're talking in, in the kind of the cosmic perspective, everything is all is well and wisely put. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And now you have your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and let me say something, too, about that, because I, I can say this now at the time I couldn't say it. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember when I left the Ramana Maharshi ashram, there was a little bit of a falling out there with people. I didn't choose to leave. My partner actually wrote a letter and put my name to it, and that that had it be that I leave too. Oh. <laughs> but I was um, very dedicated to being there because I was so into the Ribu Gita and the teachings. So that was kind of like the rug was pulled out from under my feet because mm -hmm. I really felt that that was my life. That was that I had found purpose. That these teachings were it. Yeah. And it was pulled out. So when that was pulled out. You've probably had this at different times, like a spontaneous prayer arises in you, like something arises and, and you're not praying it, but it's coming. And what it came then, it said, if this isn't my purpose, if this isn't my service, my work, show me what is. You know, it came like that. And then when the babies were born, yeah. I was like, oh my God, my prayer is being answered. You know, I said, yeah. I said, I wanted to know the whole truth. Show me the whole picture. And so I said, okay, this is, this is the walk I have to take. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can learn, I can get the whole picture. Not that it's just this honeymoon. 
You know, there isn't like these states that we can hang out in and we want to cling to them, you know, and where everything is easy, but there's then comes the trials and the challenges so that you can really walk in your beingness. So that that didn't open up in me right away. I was I was like, oh, I didn't know how I was going to get through the day. Yeah, I mean, give, give us a sense of what your typical day was like. After your previous life of nice long samadhis and everything, what was your typical day like now? Oh, I, I didn't have sleep. Uh, I was rot, like, uh, well, Libby in the beginning, she slept a lot, which was a blessing. But Abby had um, 10 different surgeries. Mm. So I was, I was at the neonatal intensive care unit where if anybody's been in a hospital, just multiply the noise by 10 or 20 because you have bells and monitors and timers and all kinds of machines going on all the time, super bright lights. Screaming babies. Yes, a yeah. lot. Yeah. And angry nurses sometimes and <laughs> sometimes very happy ones. Mm. Very, very bright light. So it's, it's a full-on environment. And I was in that for four months. So I was kind of wound up kind of day and day and night in that yeah really yeah. like you slept there every night for four months yeah wow. i i was i was in it i was um well i would go back and forth to sleep in the we stayed at a ronald mcdonald house yeah and i had autumn to take care of so i would go back my mother came and stayed with us for a while which was very helpful yeah but i was back and forth because um abby was in critical condition you know she she was wider than she was long she was black and blue she had all these her entire gut split open she had to have her intestines removed she had her eyes operated on it was like really touch and go for her that was the most amazing thing where you, she had her intestines removed and yet they eventually grew back I yeah did, they i didn't did. know that was possible i was wondering if that was because she was really still in an embryonic state uh, even though she was out of the womb, and, and at that stage of one's development, intestines can still grow. Is that the explanation for that? Well, what you're saying, the doctor didn't know that either, uh -huh. the surgeon that did it. They called in an expert from Canada because she was one pound, and to perform that surgery on a one-pound neonatal is very high risk. Yeah. So they brought in this um, specialist, and he came in and he, he told me, he prepared me for the worse, you know, and he said that he would only have a half an hour to go in there and get all the infection out. And um, the chances that he could do that in a half an hour, he didn't know if he could. Mm -hmm. But when he came back later, he said he got all the infection out and what he needed to do was remove the entire small intestines. Mm -hmm. And then um, they put her on a colostomy bag for three months and said, we'll just have to wait and see. And during that time, she only um, received my milk. They wanted to give her formula to grow her, and I wouldn't allow that to happen, so they gave her um, my milk. And when the three months came, again, for them to open her up and see what things looked like, he couldn't even believe it. He said, I've never seen this. I've never seen an intestines grow back. Yeah. And how do you explain this? And I said, well, maybe it's the, um, the milk. You know, because it has everything you need in it for life. And she didn't get any chemicals. So he said, maybe. So he started to open his mind up. Yeah. And uh, he was really a good doctor. Mm. Was, we were really, he, was, he was excellent. Mm. So she had that going on. And then she had to have her eyes operated on. And uh, they said if they didn't do the operation that she would be blind. And I remember... But she wasn't I blind yet. 
how can you know? Well, you, you said know? in your book that she would lock eyes with you and really be looking at you while you were nursing her. That's what I felt. Yeah. I felt she was looking at me. Right. Yeah, she, she was definitely, we had a connection through our vision, through our eyes. And then when um, she had the surgery and the patches came out, her eyes didn't look at me anymore. Right, they were like... The right, the right eye. Right. The left eye could, but the right eye was all the way turned in. And it stayed that way to this day? Yeah, it, we've done a lot of exercises for that, a lot of work. So she, yeah. she can see, you know, she, she actually has developed vision. But this right eye doesn't work. It doesn't function as well as the left. It's a, a stigma. How do you say it? Stigma. No, no, that's the other Stig thing. That's the thing Christians get. <laughs> Stigmatism. I don't know. It's it's you know little movements. Right. Stigmatism. Know, movements. I think. Yeah. 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 The reason I'm asking you all these medical kind of questions and letting you go on about this is that uh, you know people might be thinking, well, yeah, but let's get back to the spiritual stuff. But I think people really need to under get a feeling for the this, the situation and for the for the kind of what you were dealing with and some of this nitty-gritty stuff helps to paint that picture I think and we'll we'll get into plenty of discussions about spiritual implications and all but if we want to just recap and put this in a nutshell here's somebody who was you know able to sit in samadhi all day long and in a real nice spiritual groovy state who was all of a sudden hit with a overwhelming task or challenge and trying to to deal with it and you know we kind of have to ask ourselves if we think that we're awake or, uh, you know, enlightened or whatever we think we are, how it would hold up under under more trying circumstances. Because usually, you know, spiritual people, unless they get met, met with some unexpected thing, they manage to kind of organize their lives so everything is kind of smooth. You know, you got your routine and your diet and your comfy little meditation room and everything kind of just cruises along. But, uh, you know, what if you suddenly got transplanted into a, what if you got cancer? What if you had a car accident? What if, what if, what if? You know, there's so many things that mm -hmm. could happen. How would it hold up under those circumstances? So we're kind of, uh, you know, painting a picture of your circumstances here because that's the, the theme that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. 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 I think, it, I think it's important because it also lets people see, too, that circumstances aren't what decide your happiness yeah you know that um, you can be challenged and if there is this remembering for me uh, the fortunate part about that is until the end when it got really hard we'll get to that there was this kind of remembering mm -hmm. you know that there was we were contained in something bigger and I had reminders of that for instance one of the nurses became a very good friend and one time she brought me a roomy poem mm. Right, right after my daughter's um, eye surgery, and I was devastated by that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just that that really was hard. That hit me very hard. And she she read me this poem, and it just was so touching. And I felt, oh, again, there is something that's okay in this. Yeah, I think another thing worth pointing out is that. It wasn't like you were dealing with this as if, oh, the world is an illusion and nothing's, you know, really happening and, and there is no self and all that stuff that people parrot. But, uh, you know, you were devastated and it's okay to be devastated, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's a natural mother's reaction to a, a situation like that. And yet, uh, so paradoxically, uh, on a deeper level, there was some kind of deep okayness. In, mm -hmm. uh, underlying the, the feeling of devastation. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know, also something that I noticed during that time, which I came to understand happens for all of us, mm -hmm. is I saw myself at different times check out. Mm. You know, I did check out and um, I could see it. I could observe it happening. And it was as if sometimes I would feel I was, and maybe it wasn't even checking out, but I was seeing, it was as if I was watching somebody else's life. Yeah. I couldn't believe that it was my life. It's like, you know, I was really walking in somebody else's life and I was waiting for someone to turn the lights on or for that dream to stop. It's like, okay, when am I going to have my life back? You know? So you were kind of in a deep witness state or something at times. Are you saying that? That, that there was a, you were kind of seeing it from such a detached perspective that it almost didn't seem like it was yours. It was like you're watching a movie or something. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, in a sense. And then I can understand that too as, a, as phases people go through in their practice or in meditation mm -hmm. where sometimes you have to detach yourself all the way mm. uh, and watch it until some kind of resolution comes, you know, so you can walk back into it. Yeah. And sometimes, if not usually, it's not a, a willful act to detach yourself like that. It's just a condition that you find yourself in where there's, you know, you're in, involved in this intense thing and yet you feel like there's this inner, that you are this sort of silent, detached witness. It's not like you're trying to do it. It's kind of your, your way of functioning at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So let me go on with that story because we're coming to a dark night. Okie dokie. <laughs> so after... A few, couple of years of this it pretty much wore me out and Libby like I said she was sleeping until she was six months old so she had been home for three months and Abby came home at four months old so we were all at home for two months and it wasn't that difficult right in the beginning because we we were given help and the doctor came to our house we had a home visiting doctor who was wonderful but then Libby suddenly woke up and she woke up crying constantly. It was as if she didn't have myelin sheath to protect her nerve endings. Mm -hmm. It was as if the medication that they gave her wore off. Yeah. You know, she hadn't dripped. She was being sedated to a particular degree. Mm -hmm. And um, she was also on oxygen. So uh, we, took her, we took all of that off when she got home. One day she just woke up and was just ir irritable all the time and she wasn't able to keep food down so she would projectile vomit and the only way I could stop her from crying is if I rocked her continuously in the rocking chair or I would I had a sling and I would bounce her we had a mini trampoline we would jump on taking turns with other people and it was around the clock 24 so hours 24 7 wow. yeah so I was usually the night person because the helpers didn't stay overnight, you know, but then a nurse came and helped me during the day. So I wasn't getting any sleep. And I would rock her and maybe fall asleep for a short time in the rocking chair and then she'd wake up again. Mm. It was just her neurology wasn't, wasn't developed enough and she, she needed to be back in the womb. Yeah. You know, she just, that's what she needed. And so after about two and a half years of that, I was so worn out and I had lost sight of any sense of okayness. I was shrouded in darkness. It made me really understand maybe what uh, deep depression might look like. You know, I, I don't know what it was, but I went into a really dark, dark place and I was ready to end it.
You know, I was just like, this is not the life I can live. It's, it's not, I can't do it. We live over near the ocean and I, something took me over. I can't even say that, I don't even know if I decided it. I was really just taken over by something and I was ready to jump off the cliff into the ocean. You was, actually walked to the edge of it, right? Totally. Yeah, with the baby yeah. in your With arm. the baby. Yeah. yeah, we were both going. I got all the way to the edge and I, you know, I was really leaning in and just ready to go, closed my eyes, and I got pushed back, which I can't even explain, but I got thrown back on the ground. It wasn't a gust of wind or anything, you, it was something else. It could have been a gust of wind, it could have been something else. Okay. I'm not really sure, mm -hmm. but um, it was, it was a, a big push and, and it was like the burning bush kind of thing. It was powerful and it said, you aren't going you're staying. You're staying. I said, this is your life. Mm. This is the one you got. This is the one you're going to live. Mm. Go home and get some sleep. Mm. You know, and, in so and, many and that words. that was conveyed to you in like a voice saying that? Or it was just more like that's the concept that hit you? It was, it was like a message or it, something. Here's, here's the deal. It was, it was like a voice. Yeah, it was, it was very strong. Maybe it was a voice that was speaking from inside maybe it was coming from outside or both but it was something that was greater than my little mind that was telling me I can't do this yeah you know it was just something broke out of that something broke open and said you're doing it go home you know go back home so uh, we walked back home and it was already lighter just walking home and I fell asleep in the rocking chair with Libby and I slept for four hours continuous. That was the first time I had four hours of continuous sleep in about two and a half years. Did you have a husband through all this? I had a partner who um, left right around this time. So he hung in about that far and then he was out, he, he left? He got really sick, uh -huh. yeah. He had the stress. Yeah. He, he had a kidney condition that was exasperated through the stress of it. Okay. So he was doing enough just to maintain his job mm. and um, was very helpful as he was as helpful as he could be. Right. And <clears throat> so I slept and everything turned around, started to turn around after that because I think what that, that near death experience or that near, near suicide jumping, experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, coming that close to the edge broke open my resistance. It was like my resistance to the life that I had was broken open. It was I, up until that, with all, with all of the, I was just trying to change. I, I wanted her crying to stop. No, I wanted to sleep. I wanted all of those things. So it, it brought me to an edge. And then I wasn't resisting it anymore. And guess what? She stopped crying. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not all at once, but it really it slowed down. Mm -hmm. And I think too because of the resistance falling away, it opened me up to more possibilities. Yeah. And I want I want to see a neurological acupuncturist after that. This sounds a little esoteric, but I I, I firmly believe and I, I have friends who actually experience this very clearly that we're we're really we're surrounded by loving entities who try to help us in whatever way they can. And, uh, you know, given the fact that we still have free will and everything, but, you know, I wonder if the, the deal here was that they said, all right, this, this girl is really, 
she's, she's had about enough. We have to sort of increase the help. Let's let's sort of get this baby to stop crying. And I don't know. It, it sounds a little weird to, to people, maybe, but I, I really feel like we're not alone. And there are there are sort of subtler. We could call them guardian angels or impulses of intelligence or entities which are you know helping us in our lives. And you know maybe when you reach such a pivotal point, they decided they better increase the amount of help they were giving. And that's why Libby maybe, or maybe it was just totally within your own psychology when you stopped resisting and somehow on a subtle level that affected Libby's way of functioning and, and she settled down more. I don't know, but yeah. it's just a theory. Yeah, I, I really believe there was some kind of intervention. Yeah, I mean, even what stepped, stopped you from jumping off the cliff sounds like it was some sort of guardian angel type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there was there was something happened there. Right. Something turned me around and gave me some comfort, for sure. You know, gave me a sense of well, maybe this can happen. Yeah. And it opened me up, so that was cool. And then after after that, very shortly after that, within a matter of weeks, my old friend who introduced me to my first satsang, her name was Kathy, who I just love. And she um, came knocking at my door during that time. She had a, a tape for me to listen to. She said, there's a new teacher in town. And at the time I wasn't, you know, I was like, I was in this starting to lighten up dark night, <laughs> but it was still wasn't there yet. And I thought, oh, I don't want to hear about enlightenment. I don't want to hear about all that, you know, because I still was under the impression that awakening was about the mountaintop experience. I didn't need someone to tell me that because that was what I lost. That was gone. Yeah. And so she said, no, you're going to like this guy. He's the real deal. And he's talking about dark nights. And I said, wow, I've never heard anyone talk about a dark night. She said, yeah. She said, you, you'll like this because most of the people in the room were falling asleep. <laughs> and he said that spiritual awakening is just the beginning. I think dark nights are really an important thing to talk about too, so I'm glad we're talking about this. But I was um, at the end, kind of, and resistance was falling away, but I still had resistance to seeing a new teacher because I really had the idea that spiritual awakening was about bliss and feeling good and all of that, and I thought, you know, it wasn't really a possibility for me that that had been taken away. But also at the same time, I wanted to listen to that tape. And so as soon as she left, the first thing that I did is I put it in the cassette player. We still had cassettes then. It was one of the cassettes. That was, geez, when was that? That was um, 98, I think. I just gave away a cassette player yesterday to a donate place here in town. <laughs> Guy said, well, I yeah. guess I can do something with this. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when she left, I listened to it and it was Adi Shanti. It was Adi Shanti talking about the mysteries of Christ, the birth, the birth being spiritual awakening, the new birth, and that being the beginning where you just have your foot in the door, and then everything unfolds from there. And as part of that unfoldment, we go through these trials and tribulations, big challenges, and they're all um, meant to widen our capacity to stand in life because Really, in the end, it's about who are you when the lights go out, you know, in the end, because um, where are your fears? And I think that 
being able to walk through a dark night is an opportunity to be free of fear. And so I started listening to him, going to satsang immediately. Every He was in town um, very close to where I lived, in the town I lived in and then the town next to it. So I went to twice a week. And I just sat. The first time I went to sit with him, I didn't even notice the other people because I really just wanted to hear what he had to say. And I went and sat down in the front. And I think I was probably going to satsang for about a year before anybody knew I was going <laughs> because I just completely kept to myself. And I went and I sat down in the front. But even after the first satsang, I went home that night and I um, went into my children's bedrooms and I was just bowing to every one of them. Mm. I just was like, thank you. I felt these are my teachers. Mm. You know, it's like uh, what I'm being given is beyond measure. And I really felt um, such a good fortune at meeting Adi Shanti for one, but being given the life I was given because it was really going to allow this awakening to take hold in an everlasting way. It wasn't going to be something that came and went. Yeah. You know, I lost it, I found it. That was the end of I lost it, I found it. Hmm. You know, that, that was truly the end of that. And I started going on retreats with Adya and started to have more experiences of, of being everything. How, be could you, how could you go on retreats with the babies? The, the, someone, they were at an age when other people could take care of them? Yeah, they were um, three by then, and I had, um, through an agency, I was able to get 40 hours of nursing care a week for Libby, and I had two amazing, great nurses, and they um, shared that, and one nurse was very willing to um, stay over and just sleep there when I um, went on retreat. Yeah. I, w I was able to go on a 10-day retreat. Mm. And that was just amazing. I couldn't even believe it. And I felt like I just got restored. Yeah. And Adi, Shanti, and I became very close. And I'm very close with Mukti, too. We're very good friends. And uh, he used to say to me, because we had privates, and he, I shared with him what my realization was. And he was just constantly confirming it. He was just confirming, confirming, confirming. And until one time, he came, I came on retreat, and he goes, what are you coming on retreats for anymore? And I said, well, because I like to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and the food is good. <laughs> yeah. You know, he t he, and at a certain point he said, you know, it's really time for you to stand on your own two feet. And that was, well, we moved to Pennsylvania and I started giving satsangs. Uh, that was in 2001 when I first, first started. And I had a, you know, a very powerful experience where the name came to me, Prajna. It came to me during that time. And um, it came three different ways. And when it came the third time, I said, okay, I'll keep it. <laughs> and I, I, I told Adia that, you know, that was my new name. And he was like, yeah, that's fitting. Keep it. Now go on, get out of here. <laughs> uh, interesting. Not like that, in his, but in his own way. Basically that. Right, right. Yeah. Nice. Well, continue. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any more questions. I mean, I could always think of questions, but I'm just enjoying you rolling out your story here. And you moved to Pennsylvania because there was a Waldorf school or something that you wanted to get your girls yeah. into. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For special needs kids. There yeah. was um, 
Um, I don't know, some people have probably heard of the Camp Hill organizations, but they're started by Rudolf Steiner, who started the Waldorf schools mm -hmm. and a doctor. And they're villages for people with disabilities, mostly for adults. And they have them in a few places in the States, but all over Europe. Mm -hmm. And they had one for children in Pennsylvania, the only one for children in, in the States, in Pennsylvania, a uh, Waldorf curriculum for special needs kids. So I did want to get my kids into that because we had, I had created a school in my home. We had a, a school all the way up to kindergarten, which was Waldorf, and we had special needs kids in it. And I wanted to continue that because they were making really good progress. When I looked at the typical public schools, you had to maybe go outside of the box. So we went outside of the box. How are you and supporting then, yourself through all this? How is I supporting myself? Good yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, I, I no, money has never been a problem for me. You yeah, know, it it's like out. I don't even think about it. It's hmm. funny, like how I've always been very good at making money. You know, my business, I sold my business when Autumn was six months old, and I um, got a very good sum for that. Hmm. And then I was selling um, baby slings <laughs> and doing yoga classes, even when my kids were, um, well, not when, not when Libby was during the crying time, I wasn't doing anything. Money's always come easy to me. It's, it's interesting. And then later on, I started working as a therapist. So through that, and the nursing is paid for. So all of those, so I was getting some help by the state. Anybody who has special needs is going to get help by the state. At least you used to be able to. Things keep changing as the state is drying out. I've been lucky. I think I'm really lucky that way. Just curious. It's one of those questions that arose as I was reading your book. It's like doing all this stuff, but how, where's the money coming from? <laughs> oh, and for our school, I wrote five grants. Uh -huh. I wrote five grants and I got every one of them. You know, so that uh, that school didn't come from my money. It, it was funded and... You started um, your own school, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we, um, we took in, we didn't have tuition for special needs kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything was pretty much covered. Right. Oh, and then when we went to Pennsylvania, the Waldorf School was a certified non-public school in the state of California. Even though it was in Pennsylvania? Yes. Hmm. So what that meant, if you were a resident from the state of California, you didn't have to pay tuition. Okay. I was curious about these practicalities. Yeah, those are good practicalities, yeah. yeah. So you're so on the East that. Coast and you're doing some satsangs and... Uh, and there was something you alluded to about some satsang up in Woodstock or someplace that totally flopped. Or yeah. it was a weekend retreat or something that turned out to be a disaster? Yeah, yeah, that was my, my big teacher fouling experience. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Well, I was really busy when I got out to Pennsylvania. I mean, the first satsang that I, I did was I put a flyer up in a, like one of these 7-Eleven um, type places. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how people saw it, but two people came. Mm -hmm. And from there, it just grew. It grew very fast. And I was really busy, so I was invited to uh, go to New Jersey. I was going, you know, Woodstock was the furthest place I was going to go visit, but I was in Delaware and all these different places doing intensives and retreats and meetings and having private clients, and I didn't plan to get that busy. I knew Woodstock was a stretch, and it had been a difficult, you know, a typical week at home, and I didn't get a lot of sleep that week. But anyways, when I packed myself up, I didn't fully pack. I didn't have any time to plan. I'm jumping in the car, and I, I'm going to barely make it in time. 
and I wasn't considering the turnpike traffic, so I got a little bit lost. But then I arrived to this woman who invited me to come, and I had to clean up and change my clothes. I was I still had my day clothes on with my Libby burps all over me and everything, and I didn't bring a shirt. <laughs> I didn't bring a clean shirt. She was a very petite woman, and her shirt wouldn't fit me. And so she gave me her husband's, one of his shirts to wear, which was like this big farmer flannel kind of thing. And oh, so I, I just kept moving along, and we got to the satsang. And before me, that's where Gangaji had been giving satsangs. Mm. So I think they were expecting somebody like Gangaji to come in with flowing white, you know, clothes. <laughs> you know how beautiful Gangaji is, and yeah. all, all of her white in this. And there I come in looking a little bit like a wreck, you know, with this flannel shirt on. And oh, it was just a total flop because I didn't have any time to just sit for a minute and prepare. Mm. And so people, you know, I did a meditation and I didn't talk much, but I invited people to come up. And the first person that came up, came up to talk about somebody who had just died. Mm. And they were, they were very upset and distraught. And I just felt like I handled it really poorly because I just wasn't, I wasn't there. Mm. It just felt like a, the big teacher failing. But yeah. it really, it was just I didn't have enough sleep. But after that happened, on the way home, I realized something in my car. That I had had my driver's seat up like this. Mm. And I only knew this because the next day my caregiver borrowed my car and he adjusted the seat and when I went to get in the car after that, I was like, why is the seat way back here? You know, it was way back. And why did he adjust that? And I asked him, he said, no, I didn't adjust it. He said, you adjusted it all the way forward. So then when I sat in the seat, I realized that actually the way he adjusted it was the normal way that the seat is and that I had been leaning forward and driving like this. <laughs> that I was driving ahead of myself. Ah, so it was sort of a He's, representative of your mentality it, or something. Yeah, yeah, it was that I was still chasing. I was still on this, you know, I was still driven to do. Mm. You know, even the teaching thing, it was like I was driving, I was driving to heal the kids. I was a little bit too much in the front. And then when I got back in the car, and then I was, I was able to relax back in the seat. And it was a deep seeing for me and I, I let that, I let the, the teach, I had to let things fall away. I was trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning, or maybe it was a new development or a deeper development of receding into the backspace. So like at first in the beginning, when you're teaching, there can be this excitement and, you know, you want to get out and meet all these people and, you know, go around and accept all the invitations and feel like you need to. And then I started to see that I didn't need to do that. I started to listen in a different way. There's a chapter in my book about listening there. And I really think that that's what spiritual awakening is. As it, as it becomes more embodied, it can feel like all of our lives are kind of living in the front space. You know, we're here in this character, this persona that feels like it needs to do, 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 achieve and accomplish. And when we awaken, you know, we see that there's there's something else that's living the life. And you recede into your nobodiness. You know, you recede back into your beingness. And then there's a listening that comes with that. And you can start to listen from a different space and, and not be the driver, you know. 
Yeah, there's a saying in Vedic scripture someplace, I don't know the Sanskrit, but it's Brahman is the charioteer. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of that Greyhound ad, you know, it's, it's such a pleasure to take the bus and leave the driving to us. <laughs> it's like you're not really running the show and, and, you know, you kind of shift into a space eventually where that's your experience. Which is not to say that on the outside you might not appear highly motivated and, you know, driven and all kinds of plans and projects. I mean, you know, I have a picture of Amma behind me, the, the, the hugging saint, and, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's this sort of simultaneous complete oceanic, you know, all is well and you know, ease, relaxed into the absolute kind of thing, and yet at the same time, frenetic activity every moment, you know, with a million <laughs> projects going on. So the, mm -hmm. the two can be integrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and yeah, and it, it's, it's more like you're coming from a place of response. You know, you're responding and not, like when information comes to us, we can either react to it or respond to it. Yeah. And we can respond, but we can respond from this greater intelligence. Right. You know, which it's it's below the shoulders. You know. And the information may come from within us too. It's not like you're just following the outer prompts from other people, but there might be an, an inspiration or a thought that arises. Do this, you know. But it's yeah. it's kind of like you're not sitting there racking your brains trying to come up with such thoughts. It comes from a deep intuitive impulse, and then you just you know respond in an effortless way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they call that prajna. They do, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's a saying, uh, it's prajna parat, it's, it's, it means mistake of the intellect. And it's when you, you kind of lose that um, relaxed, you know, higher intelligence is in the driver's seat perspective and get caught up in the, in the isolated details. And so the, the prajna value is, is lost. Uh, it's mistaken. It's it's overshadowed. It's constricted, and um, so I, you know, so I think what you you experienced and are describing is a return to that orientation where prajna is in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a shift in orientation. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and it doesn't happen all at once. Right. You know, like it doesn't happen initially in awakening. Maybe it does for some people, but that's usually you know comes comes later. That whole getting grounded in a and moving from a different place. I'm kind of leery of the word awakening myself because it has such a kind of a simplistic, static connotation. Awakening, it happened, you know. But, but I think what you've been describing is that there, you know, awakening can be a beginning, uh, and then there can be awakenings and stages of awakening, and you know, it's like it's like education. You, you go to the first grade and you say, okay, I've experienced education now. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh -huh. ed I'm educated. There's no end to it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 As long as you're here living. Yeah. You're breathing. Mm -hmm. You're still growing and evolving and learning and you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then also there's the there's everybody else that's you too. <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> Uh -huh. In other words, even if in some sense you're finished, which ultimately you're not, but then there's this larger, you know, thing. Collective you, mass. Yeah, the collective intelligence, and that's not finished, and so you become more of a kind of a tool or a washing machine for the uplift, uh, the purification of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is why I think, you know, these collective sittings that people do together really benefit the whole. Yeah. You know, even if you feel 
a sense of, well, you know, I'm, I'm awake or whatever. But um, the meditation doesn't end. It doesn't end because it's benefiting the whole and you're, you're part of it. So you mean, I think you mean if you're meditating in a group or something? Well, just in general, that the practice of meditation doesn't end. Because we're part of the whole, yeah. it benefits the whole. I agree. Yeah, mm. and I ha I, that's why I continue to have sittings. I do a lot less talking mm -hmm. now in my satsangs. I, I don't have a lot to talk about. That kind of, I don't know why, it's just not there. Something comes, I talk about it, but it's really about the silence. People recognizing the power of their own presence. I think it was you I, in your book that was saying, that Adya was saying that it's the talking he does is almost like just something to keep you entertained while the silence does its thing, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, the resonance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe if, if we could point to an underlying principle of this, it's, it's that we're not, we're not just isolated biological entities, you know, uh, essentially, deeply, we are, we're, we're the ocean of, of consciousness and if we and that that ocean can be lived and embodied through these entities but when that happens and when it's experienced it, it gets enlivened and it doesn't just get enlivened within our you know five six foot physiology it get the field gets enlivened far beyond the, the limits of our individuality and, and that field enlivenment is changing the world yeah yes I agree yeah I agree, yeah. That's, that's a, a much more fruitful way of being in the world than through egoic consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why so many awakenings are happening these days. You know, in many cases with people who haven't even thought about spiritual practice or done any or anything, they're, they're tying their shoes and all of a sudden an awakening <laughs> happens and mm -hmm. then they have to figure out later on what happened. But that it's because the field is getting enlivened and it's like the, you know, the floor of a forest, the, somehow the, the earth getting more nutritious, all these plants start springing up which mm -hmm. weren't, weren't able to grow before. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of global thing happening which I think is exciting. Yeah, yeah. totally. All right, so you so, were in Pennsylvania, you, you had the, f the, the flop in Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, Woodstock has had more exciting events than you, but... <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, but it was, it was good. I, I think it was Adi Shanti who said that um, it's, all, it's important for everyone to have that teacher workout, so to speak. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, and um, in the end, I think it... You know, it turns out to the be to the benefit. So then, okay, so we're in California now, and um, I moved back to California because this is our home for one. And we were three years in Pennsylvania, and everybody was missing everything back in California: our home and our our people, and uh, the kid's dad, and made it harder to visit with him. So we came back, and before we went to Pennsylvania, we applied to a school in Colfax, California, that did a Waldorf Developmental Movement, a private school, a little school. And they didn't want to accept Abby and Libby then because they weren't walking. So she said, get her walking, and I'll take her. How old they were they? That was six then. That okay. was before we went to Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So then we're coming back, and they're nine. And Abby learned to walk as soon as we got to Pennsylvania because we found this program to put her on and she became an independent walker. Mm. So we showed up at the school. We had, I applied 
but online and over the phone and we thought that Abby was accepted but in the meantime something shifted with the school they didn't let us know but they decided they were going to close so we were driving to Colfax thinking we were going to go to the school and we got there and it wasn't happening and what she told us is that there's another school up in um, Nevada City Grass Valley it's a charter school take her there and so we went there and ha happened to be on the day that we came there was a uh, one student uh, dropped out, so Abby was able to get in. And that's how we ended up in Nevada City, Grass Valley. Mm -hmm. And then how I started teaching up here again was, um, there was a guy that I saw at an Adi Shanti retreat, and he recognized me when I came up here, and he said, don't you give satsangs? <laughs> and I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, I do. So I told him I do, and he, he started hosting me, and then I got really busy again up here doing retreats and intensives and one-on-ones. And to this day, I don't know how it happened. You know, when I look back at how busy we were, mm. I used to clear out my house. People, a group of, a crew of people would come over that were going to be on the retreat, and we would empty my house out and the kids for two nights and have the retreat right in my house. Mm. <laughs> we did that about 10 times. And, you know, we just had intensive silent retreats and satsangs, and it was great. It was really great. And I did that up until, oh, until they got into high school. Do you know our, do oh, you know, until, our Judah and, and, Ardog is up there? You know him? Yeah. He's yeah, in, we're friends. Yeah, Nevada mm -hmm. City, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's some other people around here. But yeah, I, I kept that going. That was up until I found the video. Of um, the sonogram? Yeah, of the sonogram, oh. yeah. Yeah, and when I found that, I started to slow down. Hmm. It kind of it weighed on me, and I didn't feel, I didn't feel the juice. I, it kind of um, it had an impact on me, and I, I wasn't as enlivened. And I felt called to stay home more. And I call that my cave time. Yeah in the book and I, I, I felt like I really needed to be with my daughters more, especially my oldest daughter because she was working through something really difficult. And, um, you know, so it was like that for a few years and, and that was really, really good, really nourishing. I'm really glad that happened, you know, in, in a sense because she needed, she needed that time and I didn't need to be doing the teaching you know, I, I didn't. I didn't need to be out doing that as much as I was. So now it's simple. Now yeah. I can do both. Now, now there's there's there. It feels like there's a balance between taking care of my kids and really being here for them 100% and not be tired. Mm -hmm. And also, when people come to me for private sessions and the sittings that we have, I can really be present for that too. Yeah. Where I'm not. I'm not overbooking myself in either direction. Now you're going to Peru these days, or is that are we getting ahead of our story? No, I think that's about where we are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting development. Yes, that is. How did I get interested in that? Well, let me tell you a little about. You might already know about the Shipibo tradition. I don't uh, think I ever heard the word until you mentioned it. Okay, well, the Shipibo tradition comes out of um, a particular part of Peru along the Amazon River, and it's a very ancient culture, the Shipibos, and all, all that they work with is plant medicine. So they have uh, all kinds of plants to heal anything from cancer 
you know, to growing your hair back, <laughs> digestive issues, everything. But how they work with the plants, they ingest, they do what are called dietas. And a dieta is a special diet that happens anywhere from a week to a year. The longest is a year. And you go into the jungle and you diet just one specific plant. And I find this to be fascinating just because of my little wrestling match with Western medicine to find that they're taking something from nature and they, they'll uh, go on a diet with it. And that's how they learn about its properties. So you mean so, that they'll go on and eat nothing but that plant for a long period yeah, of time? Yeah, the longest is a year. Really? And, so just um, some weird yeah. plant and you'll just eat that plant and nothing else for a year? Nothing else. Well, they'll have every second or third day, like fish or a plantain, something really simple. Get some protein. And, yeah. yeah, and water. No, the whole idea is that the plant is your nourishment, and that's what's going to, it's kind of downloads the information about the plant. So the plant, I really believe we have a plant self. Hmm. And in, in um, Waldorf education, they talk about the plant world, the mineral world. You know, we have all your different worlds. So I think the plant self is very related to our etheric body. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's kind of like the mood of the soul in a sense. You know, that you, ha- you have this, this body and that in our modern culture, if you even, there isn't even a culture, our modernized world has been depleted of all the cultural traditions pretty much. In Peru, in some places along the Amazon, they still are trying to preserve these rich, rich cultures. And so with that, the medicines are waking up this plant self. So the, our plant self becomes enlivened through that. And what can happen is really deep healing, not only for the soul, but it can clear out unconscious material too, mm. depending on what medicines you're using. If I could just interject something, it's like usually what Western medicine does is it ex- tries to find the active ingredients in a plant and it extracts those and then tries to make it into a, you know, a, a commercial product or something that you can take. Uh, in other words, like if they discovered that a particular plant seemed to have an effect on cancer, they say, okay, cool, now forget the rest of the plant. Let's see what it is in this plant that's curing the cancer, and we'll extract that and turn it into some kind of a drug. But I think what the, the indigenous people would say is that the, um, there's a, a holistic intelligence in the plant that is, yeah. Yeah, that is lost if you extract, the whole is more than a collection of parts. You can't just extract an active ingredients and expect it to have the same holistic effect, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, and even these plants, as they ingest them, they, um, the shamans, they see patterns. You know, they see the, the chemistry of the plant in energetic patterns. And they are able to read this and also then they develop what they call ikaros, which are the songs of the plants. So the ikaro is also a healing medicine. It's, it's the voice of the plant. There's, in fact, this really great book out called uh, The Singing Plants, you know, that comes out of that tradition. Somebody who, who did a, a very extensive um, study living there with the Shipibos over like uh, three decades and created this volume of plant medicine, the information about it. Yeah, so it's really different. So they won't treat somebody unless they've already ingested the plant and have been treated and know its properties. 
-hmm. and then they work with whatever the situation is. So let's say somebody listening to this had some kind of cancer, for instance, and so um, they might go down to Peru and be with these Shipibos, and uh, and the Shipibo would be able to determine what kind of plant would be good for their particular condition, and then Mm -hmm. they would put them on a regimen where they were mostly just eating that plant and occasionally a little something else, and maybe they were chanting some songs along with it that, that so is that what you explain? You're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do many people exactly. do that? Are there a lot of people going down and doing that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. This one place it's called the Temple of the Way of Light. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, are several shamans there. It's the per, the people that founded the place have uh, gone through their little weeding them out because um, not all shamans are clean. Right. <laughs> you know, you have to. You have to know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, they mostly work with female shamans, mm. which is very, very interesting. It's in, Sometimes there's a balance between the men and the women. If but, it's anything um, like Western teachers, I'd say the females probably have a better track record for <laughs> behaving themselves. Yeah, yeah, they do there too. They have a yeah. much better track record. And they're also, most of them are like grandmothers and they're really beautiful ladies. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so a person could go down there, and one of the plants, one of the most popular plants that they work with, of course, is ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've seen people have tremendous results um, from working with that plant ceremoniously, right. not in a recreational way at all. But what they do down there is they set up these um, 12-day cer- workshops, they call it, and a person would go there based on their own interest, of course, and there's something they want to heal in their life or um, be free of or whatever. It's not necessarily meant for spiritual awakening, you know, because, you you know, that that comes from you. (laughs) But the plant can clear things out of the way, especially trauma. So I've seen many people go down there and work with the medicine and um, have trauma you know, something that's really tightly suppressed and packed into the system where years of therapy doesn't get to it or years of sitting on the meditation cushion doesn't get to it. And then you go there and this really wise plant opens it up and flushes it out of your system. Did that and happen you, to you? No, I didn't have that. So you have you done ayahuasca down there? Oh, yeah, I have. I have. So, uh-huh. so typical question someone might ask is, okay, here's this woman who has already undergone a whole series of awakenings and has really kind of, you know, been a satsang teacher and is, you know, pretty well established by most people's standards. Why would she feel the need to do something like that? Wouldn't it sort of be uh, unnecessary for someone who's undergone so much spiritual advancement? Yeah, it's not really necessary. Um, you know, but I'm I'm doing it because I'm interested in training as a shaman. Okay. So I'm doing the dietas too. What are that? So What's that? The other uh, I'm doing all kinds of plants. When I go there, it's mm-hmm. I work with all different kinds of plants. I'm specifically interested in uh, finding some plants that will work for my daughters. Yeah. Have no, your daughters for, taken some of these plants yet? No, no, okay. not yet. They're they're not old enough. So but, uh, uh, the eight. Uh, Go ahead. So, so the way that it works is um, usually anyone who's going to diet the plants will also try ayahuasca mm-hmm. because it's kind of like the like it's a purger, 
the ayahuasca means purge. Mm. You know, so that's the mother plant and it's purging any negative energies or dark energies or any residual it can even get into collective energies, you know, and clearing all of that out of your system. So that would be taken first so that you're cleared out. And then you can take the other plant and you can really see what its properties are. So what was your experience with it? Uh, my experience was uh, getting really, like, I, I felt like I lost a couple of years. You know, when I did the, the whole ceremony one time, it's uh, seven ceremonies. It was as if all of that sleep that I never got, it's like I just, I felt really revitalized, like all of the tiredness. Because when you purge, you don't only purge through vomiting, you know, you can purge out both ends. You can purge through yawning, shaking. So I've seen lots of people go there and just have tiredness worked out of their system. And I think for me, that was the main thing that got cleared out is just this, um, you know, any weariness, you know, weakness, you know, just kind of feeling tired, a little bit exhausted physically. I think I might have been, a, you know, close to having, oh, what is it called where, you know, from lack of sleep, there's something that uh, develops, but, oh, I can't think of what it was. The other thing that happened for me too, when I said I didn't have trauma released, I actually did. The scar tissue from when I had the um, C-section, all of that got worked through. How do you yeah, know? Yeah, so... Well, because it's not there. You don't see a scar there anymore? Yeah, I don't see a scar there anymore. Wow. And um, a lot of energy freed up there. It was like that part of my body was closed. Hmm. It was kind of like contracted energy there. And now, um, like I could never do a sit-up. Hmm. You know, it was like really, and, and now, you know, because I do yoga, yeah. I can do things that I wasn't able to do before. Hmm. Interesting. So I had, I had mostly physical changes. So... So you're kind of in uh, training to be a Shipibo, I guess you're saying. Not a, well, that's a tribe actually, but to be some sort of plant medicine expert, right? And and you're mm -hmm. going down there and doing the training in stages, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. Are you? Yeah, I just go for like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And uh, is the end goal to be able to do it back in the states? Um, I don't know. You know, it's like, it's not even defined for me yet. Mm. I'm kind of really exploring it because I, I met different people working with the medicine and I, I wanted to consider like, could there, is, is there something in the plant world? Because I'm sure even in the States, you know, that we have plants that we haven't even been able to figure out all their properties yet. Yeah. But I'm just really interested in plants and in herbs and in healing medicine. Um, and I know that my daughters are going to need that for the rest of their lives. So, you know, some, if I can find something that can offer them more comfort or more function mm. other than just all of the different physical activities that we're doing, um, I'm interested in that. And I'm also, because I often work with people um, in my private practice who have trauma, I'm very open. It's like I wouldn't suggest it to somebody, but if somebody were to ask me about it, I would tell them the truth about my experience in working with medicine. And if they felt drawn to it, I would encourage it because I think it takes, it can take a lot of time off of your practice by, by getting through those heavy, dark places and working it out of the system. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage it for anything recreational. And then also in the end, you know, when it comes to the end of the day, you know, it's really you and, and presence. It's, it's really, 
But there's so many things that can support coming to this sense of integration, you know, because different therapies, like spiritual awakening is one thing, but it's not going to accomplish everything. You know, it's part of the whole picture. Right. There's so many things that need to be worked out. You know, in the I'm thinking of Patanjali at the moment, first of all, in his Ashtanga Yoga, you know, he has all these different aspects, yamas and niyamas and pranayama and asanas and all these different things. And, and then there's samadhi. And it's not, so it's not only just samadhi, there's all these other aspects that are correlated with samadhi and that need to also develop. You can't develop any one to the, in isolation from the others. And then there's another point in the Yoga Sutras where he talks about mantras, herbs, and gems all being sort of conducive to, or able to result, bring about, I don't know whether it was samadhi or siddhis. Uh, obviously, India has a vast uh, history and uh, tradition of Ayurveda and, and herbal understandings, and there have been sort of uh, Indian sages who could just talk to the plants and have the plants tell them what they were good for. They could just walk through the forest, and the you know, plants would kind of, they'd cognize or see or communicate with the plants and just know, even without taking the plant, what it would do. And Ayurveda also says that there's no plant which doesn't in some way have a medicinal purpose. I imagine even poison ivy or something is going to have some, some utility in, in, in some way. But it's so little understood in our culture. And, and hopefully we won't exterminate these traditional cultures before we, <laughs> before, well, hopefully we won't exterminate them at all. But hopefully we'll be able to come to understand their wisdom and, and uh, apply it because we certainly yeah. need, need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, working with any of this kind of stuff, it has to be done very responsibly. You know, you have to, there's, there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah. And somebody could, um, you know, go into a ceremony with, without a lot of understanding, and it could be the wrong time for that person. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so it's, it's something that I don't take lightly. I mean, I, I really, I, I take it very seriously as far as, considering it for anybody that you really need to know who you're who you're with where it's coming from and um, that you have proper guidance and that it's the right time because if you think about people on the spiritual journey like what lots of this I lost it I found it kind of thing happens because people get tripped up often by, you know, suppressed unconscious material that hasn't been seen yet. Mm -hmm. You know, like Christ says, no stone will be left unturned. We have to go beneath all of those places and clear it out. And in the first uh, seven years of childhood, that's where so much of our conditioning happens, all of the imprinting. And often that's where the real work happens for some people because they jumped out of that or the early teens and there's something, some kind of trauma still in the system that um, is, is, is impacting how they're functioning today, whether it be depression, whether it be addiction or other kinds of things. So if you can responsibly work with something, I've seen all kinds of things get cleared out for people. That's my whole take on it. Well, I'm glad you're emphasizing mm -hmm. that because I know at least one person and probably more who've gotten into serious trouble by doing, approaching this stuff recreationally. And um, so if a person, you know, not that we're sort of promoting, you know, trips to per per Peru right now or anything, but if a person f felt a resonance with this, um, how can you, where's the quality control? How can you possibly know where to begin to find uh, something you can trust? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I think the the place that I found in Peru can be very trusted. What's um, it called it's again? Called the Temple of the Way of Light. So, do they have a website? Yeah, they do, and okay. they have a very thorough website which has a tremendous uh, volume of information on it. And they're hooked up with, I don't know if you heard of the guy, uh, Hancock, what's his last name? Graham Uh, Hancock? Graham Hancock. You know, he's done some TED Talks. I think his TED Talk was actually banned. Maybe it's out again. I think I heard about that. There was a big controversy about it. Yeah, but there's a lot of really good research going on right now and studies with responsible organizations, you know, that aren't taking it lightly and are really being very thorough. You can tell so much because everything matters, even like as we know, just with food, because food is basically a plant. You can tell when something's cultivated properly, when it's grown in good soil and it's been uh, harvested properly. Well, the same thing, because if something is being used uh, recreationally or for material gain, it's going to have a completely different property than something that has been planted and harvested for healing medicinal purposes and for ceremony. That's a very different field. How many times have you been down there now? Oh, just a few times. I, I mean, I, I go, I also lead meditations. So, you know, I don't only, I don't just go, I go for my training, but my role is more or less meditating as well, leading, leading parts of the workshops with meditation. With people who are coming to that, that place. Yeah. And do you yourself, each time you go, like, um, do a different plant for a week and a half to see what it will do for you? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. And I'm working closely with one particular shaman who's considered the leads. They call shamans actually surgeons. You know, after you've had so much training and he's been uh, working with plants for 50 years, he's considered one of the surgeons. He's met my daughter, Abby, and I've talked with him a lot about neurology and things like that. So we're really, because it's almost new for him, but it isn't all the way new. And we have a little bit of a language. I mean, I'm learning Spanish. You know, you can speak Spanish. But we're exploring the possibilities of plants that really work with the neurology. And I bet there, you know, there's some here too, I'm sure, because I've worked with homeopathic physicians and things like that. And I've worked with neurological acupuncture. So I know there's a lot that can be done. And besides, it's nice to just get out of the country. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and to, to experience a different culture, you know. And there's so many wonderful things they're doing there. There's, I'm also involved with their permaculture program. Mm. They have a, a really, you know, in the next five years, they're planning this they have little villages involved, so they're employing the people in the villages, and they're doing a lot for the people, so it doesn't have just one focus. And then also they're helping to um, save the Amazon mm. because the oil companies are coming in there, and many of the people in the villages have become very sick from the pollution in the water and just taking over their land. So they're, we're working, too, to educate the people on what their rights are and to kind of bring all the tribes together so they can stand up against the big oil companies Mm. and also helping them to value their tradition and not to sell it off for a quick sum of money, you know, which is what is happening. And then also teaching people in the villages how to continue to work with their crafts. And they have one program going on where they're making all of these purses and water bottle carriers and I just gave them the idea of a dog leash out of uh, recycled plastic. And then they go and they, they sell these. 
So there's a lot going on there besides just, it's, it's a holistic approach. You know, to permaculture is taking care of the land and the people. And so there's a lot going on, which is fascinating to me. So that's what I'm doing. That's fantastic. Everything you just said was beautiful. There's one thing which really struck a chord, which was, you know, people doing something for a quick shot of money, where, which is going to have these devastating long-term consequences. There's so much of that going on in the world today. You know, yeah. it's like the oil companies are rushing up to the Arctic now because the ice is melting because of them. But now they're thinking, oh boy, more opportunities to get more oil. And, you know, it's like nuts. In a way, I, I kind of see that as the most critical problem on the planet, which is this sort of short-sighted, greedy, myopic, uh, quick-fix mentality where, you know, I, I want what I want and I want it now. And no sort of sense of the of the, the larger implications and the long-term consequences so i love you know what you described that you're doing yeah 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 because these people they're they're you know not living in the best conditions so when somebody presents a uh, you know a big hunk of money to them yeah all they can think of oh well i'm going to feed my kids for a month or something you know right. whatever but yeah so they're they're learning and they're they're saying no now and they're banding together that's great. I know that happens so much. I mean, in, in Indonesia, they're cutting down all the rainforest to, to plant palm oil plantations, you know, just devastating. The, the, and it, it's again, it's this quick fix mentality and it's having a you know, huge impact on, on climate change. So it's, there's some interesting new documentaries coming out. In fact, there's this thing on Showtime that's going to be a whole series with all these actors like Don Cheadle and Harrison Ford. I think it's called... Uh, Oh, I forget, in any case. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of climatologists are now feeling like 100 years from now, we may not actually have a human race anymore. It, it seems extreme to say so, but if we experience a six, degree, a six centigrade ra rise in, in, in global temperatures, that's mm -hmm. it, you know. Uh, oceans would be, would be dead, and hum humans would be dead. So, yeah. uh, and of course what you're doing is not specifically about climate change, but I think it's really cool that spiritual people, quote unquote, are getting more involved in the kind of thing you're doing, which, um, you know, if, if it happens on a grander and grander scale, could really be pivotal and critical in, in saving the planet. Or yeah. At least oh, saving yeah. the inhabitants of the planet. The planet will be fine, but we may not be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is is, is really true because, um, well, if you think about it, the Amazon River and our rainforests, you know, that's the lungs of the universe. Without the lungs, yeah. you know, of the earth, we we need that. Yeah. And and I there's a lot of permaculture programs going on around all over the world, and they they really look at it in a very holistic way. It's like how can we not only take care of our land, but the people. How can we create food for us, you know? Yeah. How can we recycle, the, reuse the water? I mean, everything and how, how we are so far away from that. But when you go back to these early tribes, that's, that's how they've been doing it forever. I'm reminded of that seven generations thing that the Native Americans say, you know, you have to consider the implication of anything you do for seven generations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is which kind of brings us to the the element of time. You know, when you say you don't know about the inhabitants, how they'll be, and that's that's usually the one thing that speeds up awakening, right? And our embodiment is um, when we remove the element of time. When there's no time, then we what becomes important to us takes our focus. 
comes into the focus, right? I don't completely understand what you're saying. Uh, explain that again. Well, you know, like if you were, if a person is in some degree of suffering or isn't awake or sleeping or still mm -hmm. wondering about the dream, mm -hmm. then if you remove the element of time, well, we don't know how much time we have. Right. right? We, do, we, we don't know. It's a big unknown. And if you remove that element of time, just imagine that that's not here if you can, we become very focused on what's really important to us. Hmm. You know, it's, it's sort of like it narrows the plane, you know, as far as where our attention goes. The uh, possibility of becoming distracted into things that are periphery to what matters start to fall away. So are you and saying a sort of an Eckhart Tolle power of now thing here? We're just focusing and living in the present? Is that what yeah, you're yeah, 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 yeah. And if we all did that. <laughs> sure. Uh -huh. Which is not to say that we shouldn't consider the implications of our actions for the future. No, you know. no, I'm not saying that no. at all. No, no, no. That actually, if, if we're really paying attention, I think the implications could be only positive. Right. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of this quote. It was by some Buddhist sage. He said something like, um, even though my awareness is as vast as the sky, my, my, attention is as, uh, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of flour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> neat. Yeah. That's what I like about you. I've listened to a number of your interviews, and you always have these great quotes. It's like, how do you, how do you remember them? I don't know. You know I have you're, a you're, fairly limited repertoire, as anyone who's listened to enough of my <laughs> interviews will tell uh -huh. you. But yeah, I'm doing this all the time, and I, I, I pick up new little things here and there. Uh -huh. uh, I'm no Deepak Chopra in terms of being a repository of quotes, but you know, these little things come along, and they really catch my attention. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, that's yeah. neat. Well, this has been great. Huh. Is there anything else you feel like we haven't covered? Well, um, well, there's a lot on my website, if anybody wants to go to that. I have some recorded audio, some videos, some samples from my book are there. Some nice photos of your family and your daughters. I enjoyed looking at those. Oh, good. Yeah, we have in the, in the very back page on the vision page, there's a little video mm -hmm. where if anybody is interested, they could watch that. It's like eight minutes and it shows what they looked like when they were tiny babies. I'll have to see that. I haven't seen it yet. I kind of yeah. feel like I know your family now, having read a lot of your book. Yeah. I know we're a little bit of an open book now. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, great. Yeah, so there's that, and I do um, private sessions. I prefer in person, but I do do Skype mm -hmm. because I, I work as a body-centered kind of person, and right. I really like to be able to be with the person. But I do fine on Skype, too, and I can be invited out uh, now that I'm teaching again. I can be invited, especially when I go to – I'm going to London in September, and mm -hmm. I, I know a number of people there, and I'm going to – I'm going to hopefully get some events together while I'm there. Well, there's a lot of people in London um, who watch this show, including a, a friend of mine who, who manages the forum on BatGap and a number of others. So maybe uh, either they'll see it and get in touch with you or I could put you in touch with them or something if you want some more contacts in London. And yeah, sure. other parts of England, for that matter, there are some people who uh, in various, no, up in northern England, who have like little... Um, there's this lady named Mandy Salk who runs this northern, 
I don't know what it's called, some kind of Northern England satsang thing, uh -huh. <laughs> non-duality thing. And there's Jeff, uh -huh. Jeff Foster and Karen Richards and uh, all kinds of nice people. Yeah, there. and yeah. Muji's there, isn't he? A lot of the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He has an ashram in Portugal, but, but he comes to London. So great. Yeah, 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 great. Well, I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure. So let me just, I guess, make a few wrap-up points. Your, your website is prajnalivingawake.org. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Prajna is spelled P-R-A-J-N-A. And mm -hmm. I'll be linking to that from your page on, on batgap.com. And the book will be out in a while. It's not out yet. But, and people can't pre-order. You know, you probably have something on your website where people could get on a mailing list in order to be notified when the book comes out. If, if not, right. I, yeah, you have something like that? Yeah, I do have something there. And, and okay. Ian, if they get on the newsletter, then you'll be able to get the update of when it will be published. Because right now, I'm deciding between, I have an opportunity coming up that I have to wait to see sure. with a publisher. Okay. So we have to see if that happens or self-publishing. But. Yeah. but I think this whole interview, I think, you know, each interview serves a particular niche in a way. Some people relate more to one than the other, but there's so many people who have, who have fairly serious challenges in life and who may be wondering whether they can sort of live as spiritual life as they would like to when being confronted by such challenges or whether or might feel as you did at one point that they've kind of lost their spiritual moorings because the challenges are so overwhelming so i think your your example will will be an inspiration to such people yeah and i think um too for parents that are at home with their kids i mean there's a way of learning all of the opportunities that arise just in being with your children and what the children bring, bring to us. It's just, it's just phenomenal when you open up to the possibility of it being there, you know, that, it, that our spirituality doesn't happen in satsang, you know, or, or in the temple or it happens in our life. So let me make some just general concluding remarks. <clears throat> Firstly, thanks again, Prajna, for you know, this conversation. It's really been a pleasure. And for those who may be seeing one of these for the first time, there is a whole collection of them now, over, well over 200. If you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you will see both a alphabetical listing, a chronological listing, a category listing that's under development. Eventually, we'll have a geographical listing so you can know where particular people are. So there's various ways to kind of sort out which ones to watch. It's going to take you a while if you want to watch all 225, but you can yeah. just watch 10 minutes, see if, see if that particular interview grabs you or not. If it does, keep watching. There's a place to, be, to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's a <laughs> donate button, which I appreciate people doing if they can. This is a, BatGap is a 501c3, which means a nonprofit organization in the U.S. There is a link to an audio podcast so that you can just listen to these on iTunes if you want to. And there is a discussion group that has its, oh. own, its own section for each interview. So your interview will have its section. Sometimes there's not too much discussion. Sometimes there's hundreds of posts. Mm. There's that if you like. And one point is that Unless you register on the site, you can't see the discussion. It looks like there's nothing there. But if you just click the login button that's at the upper right-hand part of the page and you, you register, then you'll see all the, the messages that people have been posting. 
So, thank you for listening or watching. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Adam C. Hall, who actually, in some ways, his, his story is similar to yours. He experienced very different kinds of challenges, but he also ended up going down to Peru. And he also is doing something really significant with the environment. He's got this thing established called Earth Keepers, and he's used his experience as a real estate developer to take land that would otherwise be developed and plowed or clear cut or whatever and turn it into permanent conservancies to help to preserve it. Uh -huh. um, Good. Uh, but there's a spiritual reason why he ended up doing this. There's sort of an inner underlying story of a spiritual awakening that resulted in his having this motivation. So it, in that sense, it's similar to your story and we'll, we'll see what he has to say, but sounds like an interesting guy. Yeah, I'll have to listen to that. Yeah, and I didn't know about the discussion forum, so that's that's good to know about. Yeah, keep an eye on that, and you know, people mm -hmm. might ask questions that you could answer, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, sounds right. great. Great. Thank you all for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.